Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CityWire Selected Podcast. I'm Jessica Beard, international reporter. In today's show, I got the chance to speak to Head of Multi-Management at Schroeder's, Marcus Brooks. Marcus has been at the company since 2008 and manages a team of fund selectors overseeing £3 billion. Deciding when to let go of an underperforming manager can be tricky as a fund selector. Today, Marcus tells me all about how he makes a decision to cut ties and when it's important to stick to your guns. As a fund buyer, when you're looking at fund managers, surely you must be aware of the fact that they're not likely to, to outperform in, in all market conditions. How, mu- how much do you take this into account and, and how much room for, for error do you give a fund manager? I think that is one of the most important things investors in funds have got to get their heads around is that when you're building a philosophy and process, you must surely look at the history and say, well, there are some fabulous fund managers out there who go through relatively long periods of underperformance, and yet they then come out of it again. Now, on a 10-year holding period, for instance, uh, some of the really well-known managers have done a cracking job, but they may have underperformed for, for two, three, four, five years. Um, now, if you know that that's the case, unless you're willing to hold on to a fund for 10 years, then actually you need to have a slightly different mindset when it comes to picking funds. I think investment is all about looking forward rather than looking backwards. So merely saying that XYZ fund has done really well over three years, it's top quartile, it's relatively low volatility, the fund manager's been in place for three years, he's got a great analytical team. You know, a lot of those things we would find very attractive, but not in isolation. If there is, I believe, a call that some managers perform well in some market conditions and different managers perform well in a different market condition, then surely your starting point for fund selection is what are the likely future conditions in markets? Because to put it very simply, if you're forecasting a continuation of this growth theme that's now been so dominant for the last 10 years, then you really don't want a value manager. It doesn't matter how good that value manager guy is, he's likely to underperform because of his style or because of his market cap or because he's not a momentum guy and so forth. So if you look forward and you say, I think global growth is okay, that means that cyclicals probably do okay rather than defensives, cyclicals look cheap enough, then you're starting to already uh, remove funds from your universe that you'd be willing to look at. So anyone who's super defensive thinks that there's a recession coming, you don't need to worry about them for the time being. You need to look at the guys who are still pretty optimistic. And therefore, that means that when you are investing in a fund, you're building a set of expectations about what you think is going to happen, which I think crucially makes it a lot easier for the sell decision. Because if you've only bought a fund on the basis that it's done well for three years, low volatility, all that sort of stuff. If nothing changes apart from the performance, then I think mentally it's quite hard to sell that fund because all the great things that you found in the first place, talented fund manager, analytical pool, and that sort of, they're still there. Of course, but, but when, is, when do you know it's, it's time to swap out a fund? So how, how much would you let it underperform? Um, how much margin of, of error do you give it before you call time on it? Sure. So I think if you're using a process like ours where you're trying to look forward and you build a set of expectations, it may well be that you're not expecting a fund to outperform the all share if the all share is being led by banks 
and you don't think that banks should be outperforming. So what we actually do is we create a benchmark for the fund that we actually want it to beat rather than the broad benchmark. So in the US, it's far easier where you already have growth and value indices. If you've got a growth manager who's underperforming the S&P 500, yet is outperforming the Russell 1000 growth, then actually on a sort of pass-fail basis, is this a good growth manager? Yes. Is having a growth manager the right thing to do? Now that's a very different discussion. Now if it is not right to have a growth manager, then you can actually say goodbye to that manager or that fund or scale the position down just because from an asset allocation point of view. Now if that growth managers underperform the growth index. Now that's trickier. That means that there is either a process issue going on. It could be that they've taken on too many assets and this is something you find with fund managers or funds that have had a great deal of success. It could be, for instance, one, uh, one fund manager, Bill Mellon, many years ago when he was at Leg Mason, um, had a really tough time uh, when the oil stock started doing really well. Now he's not a manager that you'd expect to have an awful lot of oil, but more than zero, which is what he had. And it turned out Bill Miller never had uh, an energies analyst on his team. And it shows you how he thinks about stocks. It shows you that that is an area of the market he's willing to write off. And a lot of people hadn't noticed that. So again, you know, if you've got a manager who has just underperformed, is it due to fund size and capacity issues? Are they losing uh, their focus because this uh, um, uh, popularism that they've managed to garner, maybe they're launching new products, maybe they're thinking about doing a hedge fund and in the background they're running a hedge fund as well as a long only fund, uh, maybe he's doing too much marketing, maybe he's just had two or three stock blow ups and that can happen as well. Yeah, so how much um, does your discussion with the fund man manager help you help your patients towards that fund manager? So if they're more transparent about the fact that at the moment they're, they're underperforming the market but the, it, these are A, B and C, this, these are the reasons why. In that case, are you more likely to give, give them more time to turn around? Absolutely. I mean, we generally don't uh, invest with people who do not give us transparency. It's absolutely vital. I mean, as far as we're concerned, when we're investing our clients' money, we are making a promise to them that we're going to do the very best that we can do. We're going to provide the oversight. We're going to look at the risk levels and the performance and make sure that's relevant. And if we're not getting the data, we can't possibly make that promise. Therefore, we won't invest. Yeah, when we're talking to a fund manager, which is my favorite pastime, um, it is actually with a body of knowledge and, and data behind us. You know, we collect uh, a full stock by stock level portfolio evaluation from every fund that we invest in. That gets run through something called star research so we can see the factor biases within the fund and see if they're changing. So maybe an underperformance could, could coincide with a sudden change in one of those risk factors that we'd expect to be more permanent, which you know we don't have to wait for a quarterly meeting for that. That's an email or even a phone call, telephone conference. A lot of fund managers are very good at giving us access because we don't waste their time when uh, you know, we don't do meetings for the sake of doing meetings. So you know, when we're doing a meeting face-to-face, -face, we should already be going into that meeting with a ton of knowledge behind us. It's, I think, quite a privilege to spend time with fund managers. I don't want to waste their time asking the obvious question, what's your turnover, how many stocks have you got, what's your top 10? They're all on a fact sheet. You can find that out really easily. So what you really want to know is why have you got the stock and what's going to make you change your mind? What's really hurting you? What's going to make you change your mind? Where Test the idea that maybe they're not adhering to their process as much. Test the idea that actually the group dynamic isn't working or is working better. Uh, ask them those sort of questions. And, and I think that's what the face-to-face -face is all about. It's evidence testing. Okay. Um, in a previous interview, something you said was that talented people should not be consumed by the dangers of getting things wrong. However, the industry has not been designed that way and too many people have been limited in the risk they take, which detracts from the ability to be who they are and do the best for their clients. Yeah. 
Is that a recurring issue in the industry, do you think? I think it has been. Um, and I think this is the issue that possibly led to the rise of uh, passive investing, because if you take a really talented fund manager and tell them that they can only outperform in a certain manner, in a certain way, using a certain amount of risk, then actually they may not be set up to do that. And that's one of the reasons that we prefer managers with quite pronounced different differentiating characteristics. So I don't tend to, well, we don't tend to invest in managers who are a bit value. We tend to invest with managers who are properly value or properly growth or properly small cap. The nirvana, I think, for most fund groups is to find that core manager who can tilt it a little bit growthy, a little bit large cap, a little bit uh, value-y and, you know, navigate their way through markets in every market environment. And if the day someone does that on a sort of 10, 15, 20 year, they'll be running 50, 100 billion. So it's not been seen yet? Though. Well, this is it. This is the point. I don't think it can be done. I think the skill set required to do that is actually incredibly rare. And maybe, you know, the day it does happen is just a, a matter of luck because there are so many people trying to do it. So I think it's more relevant for people to uh, try and pick a blend of good value and active um, value and uh, growth managers, for instance, overweighting a proper value style. Um, and that means it's incumbent upon fund management groups to give fund managers the latitude to get it wrong and not fire them just because they've got a bad one or three year number. Um, because, you know, in asking people to get away from the benchmark, to get away from being passive, to stop this fallacy that there is a core fund out there that can navigate every twist and turn of the market, you are necessarily opening yourselves up to underperformance. Now, you know, sometimes that's in a rising market, so you're just not making as much money as you might otherwise do. I can understand from a client's perspective that's not great. It probably feels psychologically worse in a falling market where you're losing more money than you necessarily need to. But ultimately, if you're happy with the skill level um, and the ability of the fund manager longer term to generate compounding good returns, good risk-adjusted returns, then I think that's the whole point of fund selection. It's not necessarily about jumping in and out of funds. It's about finding talented people for the right environment, which does actually therefore mean the fund selector has to make some sort of forecast about the environment. It's also interesting to look at uh, the individual asset classes and where fund buyers are more likely to be patient with fund managers. Um, recently, Dr. Nish Long, our head of cross-border investment research, um, found in her latest research report that bond managers are more likely to be fired earlier in their careers if they underperform, while equity managers are often more allowed a second chance. Mm. Is that something you've seen in the past or in your own experience? You, trying, it's the first I've heard of it. I haven't read the article, I'm afraid. Um, does it sound logical? I don't know, actually. I mean, the, I mean, the the study found that um, many of the most experienced equity managers that underperform are likely to be underperforming for quite some time now, and that wasn't the case with bond managers, um, who who tended to be terminated earlier um, earlier in their careers than equity managers. Is so that's not something you've seen so far. It's not something I would uh, immediately say, oh, I recognise that statistic, because I don't. Um, there have been some very good bond fund managers who've had tough one or two years. Um, one of the most famous uh, ever, Bill Gross, he's been through some um, sticky patches, and yet at um, uh, a good old age, beginning with a seven, I think, he's still managing billions, um, having a toughish time at the moment. But yeah, I think it's more a case of, do people believe in the philosophy and process that you're adopting for your investment? If in your early days, uh, you're not quite so psychologically set up for loss, 
and there's been a whole bunch of statistics about how we all feel about a loss. A loss is typically born or feels twice as bad as a gain feels. So if you're spending 20 hours a day staring at screens trying to work out what's going wrong and why you're not necessarily in a nurturing environment that can help you through that then maybe you do just quit maybe you go back to being an analyst maybe you take a career choice a change I would say though that in equity space equities are more volatile than bonds typically unless you're in high yield or emerging market debt so it's more likely I would say therefore that you have uh, extreme out or underperformance because of that volatility of the benchmark so you know, if someone does underperform by 3% in a year, that is easily get backable uh, within 6 to 12 months. Uh, whereas in bond world, if you get behind by 300 basis points, you know, that is um, two years worth of the 10-year gilt yield at the moment. So it's, yeah. Has there been a time where you've stuck to your guns and, and stayed with the manager through their outperformance? Through their outperformance? Um, and, and, and underperformance. underperformance. <laughs> uh, well, you're always bought up to believe that you should run your winners and actually was slightly contrarian on that. So from an outperforming manager, we get nervous because um, if you do believe as we do that managers go through a phase where their style works really well, every day that they're outperforming brings that day when they're going to underperform slightly a bit closer. So you know you need to know where you are in the, in the life cycle of that idea and perhaps start taking some profits. But the underperforming managers, absolutely, yeah, we'll stick with them. So long as we have faith in the philosophy and the process and the people, that the company is nurturing them, is helping them, giving them the support. And there is just something like a style bias. But if it is someone who's walking sequentially into profit warning, profit warning, profit warning, um, and seemingly unable or unwilling to change, then you know maybe we do have to move on. The other circumstance, of course, is in isolation, an underperforming manager may be backed. But if you were to happen to find someone with similar qualities that for whatever judgmental reason you thought was better, you may well just move on anyway. It's nothing to do with the fact they've underperformed. Maybe the other guy that you're moving to has also underperformed. But there may be something unique about uh, their insights or their experience or the skill set that they've got. You just make a preference call. Um, so I wouldn't like to say there's a hard and fast rule. I mean, for instance, I know some fund selectors will always sell when there's a manager change. Yeah. We don't necessarily. No, so, so how much importance do you put on the manager? Because a lot of the time you get these, these big star managers, these big names um, that people back, and as soon as they leave, you know, it puts into question the purchase of that fund. Yeah, yeah. And I can understand that. I mean, in, in certainly um, in all types of firm out there, I mean, I was going to say that this is probably something more prevalent to a boutique where you've got a star manager culture, you know, there's one or two guys there, one or both of them leave, would you then sell? Your natural instinct is to say, well, absent a recruit of a similar standing, I probably will sell. Um, however, you don't know who they're going to recruit. And the person you're about to go and switch your money into is possibly the person they're about to recruit. So I don't think you need to have a hard and fast rule. You know, rule, you know, if you go from A to B to C to D, that is logically sensible. However, there are occasions where something breaks down, and I don't think you should put yourself into a corner by saying, well, if they leave, I've got to definitely sell. Um, some style managers, I mean, I would say 10 to 15 years ago, people worried about Nigel Thomas at uh, AXA uh, retiring. You know, tr tremendously good investor, long-term outperformance, you know, just a fantastic firm to spend time with. And he's now, you know, got his succession plan in place. There's a great guy called Chris Sinjin who's going to be taking over. Uh, I used to work with Chris many years ago. I think he's a really talented fund manager. And actually, no one's that worried about it now because it's been dealt with properly. Um, where you get manager change, we had one recently with um, 
uh, Chris Reed at Majedi Income deciding to go back to academia. You know, the fund has strongly outperformed. He's done a cracking job there. Really, really good. And, you know, we took our time to see who was going to be coming in. We didn't sell on day one. Um, slightly different approach. Um, we had a subs bench that we were slightly happier with. So we've ended up uh, putting a bit of money with Ben Whitmore over at Jupiter. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to the performance he can generate for our funds. I think he's a very good, again, another value bias manager. Over the past couple of years, we've been seeing a lot of the big, iconic fund managers in the industry retiring, or and, and many others, you know, coming close to retirement. We've seen um, Edward Carmignac in his 70s now starting to look at succession plans. Mark Mobius, who, you know, calling time on his career, but then going back, in fact, and starting yeah. his own boutique. Yeah. Um, you, you seem to get a lot of a lot of these managers staying in the industry for a lot longer. Um, are you more likely to back these, these veteran, these well-seasoned names? Well, age to us isn't a determining factor of either invest or disinvest. Um, we've got a fairly youthful guy who's running a, an absolute return fund called the GLG UK Absolute Value Fund, Jack Barrett. Um, I don't think he's, I think he's about 30. Um, but uh, equally, um, we had one of these uh, well-seasoned investors, Andrew Green, uh, last year decided that um, he felt he might want to do less investment and less investment meant that he possibly wouldn't be running a fund. And he's, he wanted to have a, a discussion with us about him coming off the GAM uh, Global Fund. And, um, you know, we're, we just think he's a great investor, really great investor. If you look at Andrew's long-term record, it's absolutely outstanding. And so we said to him, look, you know, if you really want to retire, that's obviously that's absolutely fine. But we would be very happy for you to continue running money, even if you set up a brand new fund under the GAM umbrella. And he has done the GAM uh, Global Eclectic Fund, uh, which is in our funds now. So we actually moved out of the fund that he was managing, which he's handed on to one of his colleagues. And he's running this fund. I think it's only got two or three clients in it. And um, So you what know. made you move out of, out of the original fund that he was running? Was it, was it purely because he was moving off it? Do you know, I think you'd need to ask GAM, but I mean, they, they signaled the fact that they were going to make a transition to another manager, and Andrew said it was the right time for him. And I think we then suggested that, uh, you know, if Andrew wanted to continue money, managing money, we'd be supportive of him launching a new fund, and they thought that was easier for their business. Mm -hmm. So we did an in-specie transfer, low, uh, zero-cost transfer of the assets. And uh, so just, I'm using that as an illustration basically to say that where you've got a talented individual with a philosophy and process that you believe in that you think is relevant to your portfolios today, I don't think age, is, age or sex or race is a determinant of anything actually. I think you just want the highly, the best skilled, best positioned fund for your fund of funds. But it is, um, it is helpful in, in making you more likely to trust that manager, I imagine, if you've known them for a long time and that yeah. you know, yeah. you've seen what they can do over the years. It can give you some comfort, certainly. I mean, um, you, if someone's been around a while, you can look at the data. There's a long-term track record. You can look at how they did and say, the tech boom, which is, I think, uh, is quite a good an analogy to today's market um, backdrop, which is, you know, the S&P 500. If you were to take away the top 10 tech names, it was, it's gone nowhere year to date. It's a bit like it was in 1999, for instance. So you can, with someone who's been around, like an Andrew Green, who's been around a long time, you can say, well, how did he fare? What was his thinking? What did he do then? If I were to have a meeting today with him, what, would he sh what therefore should he be saying to me? Whereas with someone who wasn't around in 99 managing money, that is, that's harder. I absolutely get that, but it doesn't mean it's an irrelevant conversation. Because I think, you know, I, 
when people are thinking about their portfolio, it is a living thing. It is, well, I've got these stocks for this sort of environment. I've got these stocks because I think there's going to be a change in the industry and, and so forth. And, and when you start seeing people like Jack Barrett, for instance, at GLG, you know, he has done really well year to day, very low volatility, managed to deliver an absolute return in very choppy markets in, in a, a UK absolute fund, value fund. doesn't matter about his age. He's just got a great process, working with a great colleague, um, Henry Dixon, as well. Um, so, yeah, got some confidence in that. No, and I imagine that there must be some new exciting managers coming onto the scene. Um, at what stage do you have to have a specific track record for those? How long, how long after they first started in their career would you typically start to look at them as an option? Yeah. Well, the starting point for us is that we invest in anything that's FCA uh, regulated or recognised. Um, and that would, if you were to say open-ended only, that's 5,000 funds. So the choice already is extraordinary. Now, I would think um, most people would recognize as a large swathe of, of those existing funds were designed for different times. Uh, they've got um, differentiating benchmarks. They are performing a function for an asset allocation team somewhere else and possibly a bit too dull for what we want. Um, so what we're looking for is, if you take away the middle ground, the stuff that either to the right or to the left. So, you know, if you were to say it broadly, strongly, uh, you know, relatively high tracking error funds that have given the fund manager the ability to really use a lot of levers and to be able to pull them quite hard. <coughs> and there aren't, you know, there are not thousands of those. There was, there's probably hundreds of those funds that exist. So we've already got a huge amount of choice. When someone new comes on the scene, i.e., you know, a US investment house that didn't have a fund that was FCA recognized or regulated, you know, they may already have a, a relatively good track record and say US equities or EMD or whatever. That's really interesting. I mean, that's great. That's, that's a new project for us to get to know another firm. I, I really like that a lot. Um, but when you've got an existing firm um, who promotes someone um, who's in their 20s or 30s or you know, someone that we don't know, again, that's really interesting because this could be the next Neil Woodford, Anthony Bolton, Bill Mott. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, we've got a, a track record of actually seeding new funds. We don't require a one-year track record or 100 million. We are pretty happy that our track record of investing in funds with people that we either know um, or have come to know before they launch the fund is, is pretty strong. Um, and when you think about it logically, would you rather invest in the 20 billion pound fund that's struggling to buy and sell shares, or would you rather invest in something that's quite small, quite niche, um, got a really excitable, highly talented guy that's really keen to make a name for themselves, I mean, I think the second way is always. And now that doesn't mean young, by the way. No. It just means someone who's got made their break. It could be someone who's been an analyst for 10 years and finally they're given a fund, a bit like Chris Reed actually at Majedi. He was an analyst, he was first of all, and then he became an assistant on Majedi Tortoise and then finally got the equity income funding and he did a great job. So I wouldn't characterize it as youthful, but new, exciting, you know, it's when you're talking to a fund manager and they're talking about the stocks in their portfolios and the positions they've got, and you can see the light in their eyes sort of dancing. That's really, really good. Yeah, I was going to say, what are, what are the main qualities that you would look for in a fund manager? So say you meet them for the first time. Initially, what are you, what are you wanting to see and hear from them? So the first meeting, again, we would already have done hours of work beforehand. So again, building up expectations about what we think he's going to, or he or she is going to say to us. So is this a growth portfolio? Again, we can use the Star Research data. If they've been running a separate mandate or they've been helping on another fund, we just analyze that. Um, if there's been any uh, news articles or fund research notes that are publicly available, we'll read all of that. So we try and build up a picture 
about what it is that we think we're going to hear, and then evidence test that against what we actually hear. So, and, but when you, someone's got a new fund, often their process is kind of there or thereabouts, but not fully formed. And I think that's right anyway. I don't think anyone, when they hit um, be becoming a fund manager for the first time, have a process that never changes. It does need to evolve anyway. But when they're talking about why they've designed their process in the way that they have, the mistakes that they've made in the past, either as an analyst or they've observed from some of their colleagues, what they've done to mitigate the, those mistakes, or, and also to understand which levers they do have to pull and how hard they're allowed to pull them. Often people are quite keen to be quite constrained in the early days for fear of getting it wrong, which you know, makes it a bit less interesting really. What we want to see is how they uh, manage money because I think it's just as important to see how they're going to be managing three years' time when, if it works, they might be running 300 million. You know, running a 10 million pound fund with just seed capital in it is very different to 300 million. So we need to make sure that the process is scalable, that they've got the, uh, the right resources, and that you know, they know every stock in their portfolio. They know why, that's, why they own it. They know why they bought it. They know why they might sell it and have their expectations themselves. Is there anything that they, they could say that would really ring alarm bells that, that would make you a lot more cautious or, or concerned about investing in that fund? Yeah, so we had a meeting many years ago, it must be 18, 19 years ago, and uh, I recall it to this day because it was one of those meetings of, I just can't believe the guy said that. And it was, um, it was an emerging markets team, uh, they had a cracking set of numbers, really good set of numbers. And uh, we were doing an emerging market review at the time, and um, I'd never met the manager, relatively young guy and his colleague who was also a relatively young guy, sort of late 20s. And we were going through everything and I asked uh, a specific question about some of the Turkish stocks that they had in the portfolio. And the lead manager said, we don't have any Turkish stocks in the portfolio. They said, but you do. Uh, otherwise the valuation you sent across to me ahead of the meeting is incorrect. And they said, no, 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 we definitely don't. And then the sales representative of that company kicked him under the table and said, you do, you have three. <laughs> And that, for me, was a big sign that actually this guy was only really running a part of it, and he had a colleague that was running another part of it. So, which I imagine isn't a problem as long as they're they're honest about that and transparent and explain yeah. the situation. Yeah, and my feeling was they weren't honest about that at all. That you know, this is one person who's trying to take credit for the entire portfolio, albeit with a deputy. Um, and uh, and I thought, well, that was misleading. And if you're going to prepare to mislead me on that, what else are you prepared to mislead me on? Well, so, in a world of choice, again, with five thousand funds, you don't need to be investing with managers where you have that slight wrinkle and I think the trust and um, the trust side of it I think is incredibly important it's very you know it's the old cliche isn't it? it's, it's very hard to get trust but very easy to lose it and in that meeting they lost it instantly. <laughs> um, are, there, are there any managers that, that you've really built up trust with and that now you feel very comfortable with? Um, the degree of comfort you can get with a manager I think surrounds the level expectation of the type of performance they're going to generate. And, and if, if you've got a value guy and, he, and he's outperforming in value times and underperforming in growth times, you get some comfort that he sticks to his process. And coming back to your point of earlier about seasoned investors, one of the great things about seasoned investors, uh, if you're going to be uh, positive on them, is that they will have had periods of underperformance. And if they stayed at the same firm all the way through, there can be a belief and expectation on our side that the management of that company won't get rid of them because they've seen it before. That's one of the problems with younger managers, I think probably your uh, piece of work relating to fixed income is if you've only just started out and you sequentially underperform, you haven't got that track record that allows the management to necessarily support you in the way. I would hope they would anyway if they think that you're talented. Don't you also, on the, other, on the flip side, get issues 
with managers getting overconfident? Yes, yes, you absolutely do. And we have had, I believe we've had uh, circumstances like that in the past. And then it's incumbent on us to make sure that we understand what that might lead to. So if you get someone who's overconfident, is that they're not paying their portfolio as much attention as they used to? Well, that will come out very clearly uh, in a face-to-face -face meeting or a conference call. Um, if they're overconfident, the risk levels may be changing. So if you build an expectation about the factors you would normally see in a portfolio and suddenly those go out of whack, well, it could be for a unique reason, but it could also be because of overconfidence. So we do use quantitative data to build an assessment of what we think is going to happen or how the, the portfolio is managed and then evidence test that. We also monitor it on a month-by-month -month basis so that if you see something really spike out, it's an instant sort of red flag. You need to find out what's going on. So overconfidence can happen if you've been voted for manager of the year three or four times in a row um, and everyone thinks you're amazing, your assets have gone from 100 million to 10 billion. You know, that is something I think is quite hard for people to, to cope with. Um, it's natural as a human being that your confidence levels will fluctuate. Um, overconfidence and underconfidence can be really debilitating though. Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking to me. You're welcome, thank you very much. To hear more of the CityWire Select podcast and tune in again to the latest show, go to citywireselector.com forward slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at CWSelector to stay up to date with all the latest fund industry news. Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts.